0: Well, as you know, we're in John chapter 4, and we have been working our way toward talking about Jesus and the woman at the well. And it has taken us a couple of times through the first through verses just to get our bearings, get all set up for this great passage. And I have to tell you, going into it, this is the story of the woman at the well. So many of us know it. Even before we are Christians, we hear excerpts from this story, even the story, the account itself, and there is just so much here that could be shared. What I want to do as we approach this text today is to draw out a couple of main thoughts. One is the activity of God that is involved in bringing this woman to this time in her life of being saved, and that is a divine appointment. And the other is the approach The tactful approach that Jesus Christ used with this sinful, outcast, frustrated, lonely woman at this point in her life to lead her to salvation. A divine appointment and a tactful approach. That's what I want to talk about here. It's interesting, you know, as you go through uh, John chapter 3 and you see Jesus with Nicodemus, this classy, religious Individual of high standing and no doubt wealth in Israel and you see the approach of our Lord with him you could not have a greater contrast if you looked all through the Bible than what you have from chapter 3 to chapter 4 as Jesus comes to minister to this woman at the well I was struck by the words of John Phillips as he put together a contrast of the two people in the ministry there I want to read them to you He says the contrast could hardly be greater between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. One was a man, the other was a woman. One was a Jew, the other was a Samaritan. The one was a respected ruler, the other was a social outcast. The one was seen as a moral man, the other was seen as an immoral woman. The one had come to Jesus by night, the other came at midday. The one had no arguments, only wondering how. The other was full of questions and debate. The one was cautious, the other was bold. The one did not seem to know what he wanted, the other knew only too well. The one fades out of the story unnoticed, the other went back to her crowd and brought them all to Jesus. The one we hear of again later in the Gospel of John, the other fades into the woman's usual invisibility in that patriarchal society. What a contrast! And What I like about the contrast is this. The fact that Jesus loves to reach out to any individual, whether you be a neat and tidy and outwardly moral individual, or whether you be one who through the series of events in your life, the inward cravings of your own heart, the passions of your own soul has slowly gone down the ladder into sin until you've hit bottom, whether you are outwardly at the top or one who has hit the bottom, the skids of sin so hard that you can't even hide it anymore. Whether you're there on the one extreme or the other, Jesus loves to reach out and save sinners and thrill their souls with His cleansing power and might and His fulfilling love. And that is what we have here in the contrast. Now, to begin with, I want to just read through verses 1 through 7 where we have already been. Then our goal is to get to uh, verse 30, we have a goal. It's good to have a goal. People make a lot of money in these days having seminars telling you just to get a goal in life. We have a goal. It's good. So let's read verses 1 through 7 to warm us up. Remind us of where we have been to set the the entire encounter in our minds. In verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John... Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. It is near to Shechem, and we talked all about that. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, 12 noon, by John's reckoning of time. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now we have talked all about the journey and how our Lord was taking really a detour from the usual route that they took up on the other side of Jordan, through Perea, and then back up across the Jordan into the Galilee area. We've talked all about that. We've talked about Jesus sitting there at the well and all that that implied in his weariness as he sat, you remember, thus. And now we come to move on in the text. And we have a wonderful divine appointment here. We're going to be talking about evangelism as we flow through this text, and there's basically two things we need to always, forever keep in mind. What we want when we seek to convert people is a divine appointment. We want to encounter a person under the guidance and the influence of the Holy Spirit, someone who's being led into this encounter by God, even whether they know it or not, a divine appointment. A time in which God has been working internally on the person, maybe showing them their emptiness, their frustration, the pit of life, whatever. And then by his design, he has brought us into the picture with the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We want a divine appointment. We should pray to that end. But once God gives us a divine appointment, it becomes absolutely crucial how we handle the appointment. Now, many of us deal with appointments in life. And there are a lot of important ones. But there's nothing more important than a divine appointment where God has put you into the picture and giving you the honor and the responsibility of properly handling an individual that he is seeking to lead away from the perils of hell and into the blessedness of heaven for eternal life. You understand how crucial it becomes that we handle these appointments. You've got your appointments in life, handle them well. But pay special attention to divine appointments when God is wanting to use you to lead someone into salvation through Jesus Christ. So the divine appointment and the tactful approach, that is what we see here and that is what we need. Let's talk about this divine appointment. It is wonderful to me as I look at this passage to see how aggressively God sought this woman's salvation. And that is the way it always is. God is the one who always makes the first move. Generally, you must understand that salvation is unmerited by by any man. No man merits salvation in any way whatsoever. There is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. No one has anything to offer God to merit salvation. But not only is salvation always unmerited, it is initially unsought by the individuals that are blessed with it initially unsought it is God who initiates the process of salvation God goes after you as an individual you're running into sin as far and fast as your legs will carry you and you have no thoughts of God at all the Bible says on your own and as I look at this woman as we roll away from Nicodemus, close off that chapter of the book, and we come to this sinful woman in Samaria, I thank God and I rejoice to see how God aggressively sought her salvation. And as I look at Jesus Christ, I see him making all of the first moves. And again, think of who is there and the holiness of Jesus in comparison to the sinfulness of this woman. And it becomes a very stark contrast and a wonderful Illustration of God making the first moves in salvation. Look at verse 7. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. He's the one that initiates the conversation. And it is that conversation that leads to her salvation. It is always God who does this. When I look at this woman coming out to the well, and we shall see probably coming by stealth because of who she was, I am reminded of Isaiah 65, verse 1, where God says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was found by those who did not seek me. And it is all because of what God does on the behalf of that individual. In Romans 3.11, it says, there is none who understands. Then it says, there is none that seeks after God. So whatever you might think of those people out there going after this path and that path in life, attending this type of religious center and that type of religious center, going after that religion and that religion, the Bible says that man on his own, aside from the work of the Holy Spirit, does not seek after God. There is none a sweeping statement that seeks after God. And yet, when Jesus turns and faces his disciples in John... Chapter 15, why don't you just turn there? We'll look at it together. He says something very wonderful and very encouraging, expresses the love of God so much and the concern of God that when he goes after a soul, he wants to save that soul and carry that soul safely to heaven through all the wickedness of this life. Jesus turns to his disciples in John 15:16, and he says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. See how comprehensive that is? I appointed you and that you should go and bear fruit as you move through this life, as you go about what I've called you to do. But not just bear fruit, but fruit that remains, fruit that is lasting. I want you to reproduce people like yourselves with real and lasting salvation. And I have appointed you to that end. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I love to see God in control of salvation, don't you? I love to see the massive love in the heart of God and the all-encompassing ability of God to save that one that He goes after. And you see this all through the Bible. For example, you have Abraham. The Bible tells us in Joshua 24 that Abraham was, you don't have to turn there, but Abraham was the son of an idol-worshipping father that he came from an area and a people, relatives, father, who sought idols. They did not seek God. And the next thing you know, Abraham is leaving that place, going after the plan of God as a pilgrim and a stranger in this world. He was drawn to God, though he was not seeking Him initially. God came and initiated all the moves necessary in salvation. You look at Paul on the road to Damascus, and he is a classic example. He could not be more opposed to Christ and his cause and his work than he was. And suddenly he's thrust in the dirt by the power and the glory of God. When he looks up, he's blinded, and he is converted and sent out to become the champion of the cause that he tried to exterminate. And the one I really like, and you women I'm sure appreciate this as well, is in Acts 16.14 where it says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. That's the initiation of salvation by the hand of God. Salvation is unmerited and it is initially unsought by all of those who ultimately receive it. It is because of the grace of God and God moving out to love and to bless a soul that any of us are saved. This is the grace of our God. He makes all the moves, the first moves in saving this woman. And that is why we read in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us, right? Oh, how I thank God for that. So he makes all the first moves in saving this woman. And the other thing I want you to see is that he went out of his way to reach this woman he went out of his way and we've been looking at that he went out of his way even by going to Samaria he must needs go through Samaria he went out of his way because there were people there he wanted to reach with salvation and specifically the first one was this woman whom he was to meet at the well there were so many there you know what that says to me we need to go out to the people We don't want to just pray for God, bring them to me. We need to go out to them. And the other thing I see here is that he went out of his comfort zone to reach the people. The comfort zone, you know, was the route around through Perea, the long way. Took six days as opposed to three days. (laughs) But it was the comfort zone because there were no Samaritans on that way. They didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like them. So he goes out of his comfort zone to reach these people. And that is what we need to do. Isn't it true that we often just settle into our comfort zone? Lord, I want to witness, but send me someone I like. Send me someone I'd like to golf with. Someone I'd love to surf with. Lord, you know, somebody who's into similar things. And you know, we can talk real easily. And we'll witness, yes, if we get alongside people like that. Jesus went to Samaria, straight out of his comfort zone. There were no boundaries in his mind of where he was willing to go and what he was willing to do. And that is why he is able to reach people like this Samaritan woman. God wants us to live the same way, with no boundaries, no set stopping points, where we would say, I'll do this, but no further, Lord. When we come to God and say, God, I'm willing to go out of my comfort zone, then we see some exciting things begin to happen. He went out of his way to reach this woman. So God aggressively sought her salvation, and the other thing here at this divine appointment is that God providentially arranged the circumstances of her salvation. Look at John 4, 7. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, it becomes very quickly obvious, doesn't it, that this lady's steps were guided by God that day to the Well, Now, when she got up in the morning and was going through her day, because she gets to the well at noon, I really doubt if she had anything on her mind, other than the fact that as the day got hotter and hotter and hotter, she was getting more and more thirsty. And she went to her water jug and realized it's empty. That means sometime today I've got to go to the well. I don't think there was anything beyond that as she went to the well. Just her usual routine. Now, she went to that well, we know, from our perspective now, on that day, because by that time the hour had struck in which God had ordained providentially that she would meet the Savior of the world, who was that day to become her Savior. That's why she went to the well. And what that says is that even our least little movements are often overruled by God for His designs. And again, here is a God who is in control. That is so wonderful to contemplate. We often get so concerned, Well, am I doing this just right? Am I doing that just right? I wonder if I, you know, you come to a stoplight and you wonder what you should do at the stoplight. You know, should I, should I when it turns green, maybe God wants me to turn right or left? What if I miss it? You know? What if I get all caught up and I, I go through Dairy Queen instead and get a large cone and get really distracted? we get so caught up. What I see here is here's a woman who's thirsty. She needs water. She gets her jug. She's going down to the well with really nothing on her mind, but getting some water. And yet from God's point of view, this is the most monumental day of her life. And this is the greatest walk of her life. And she's going to return home a changed woman. And the Bible is full of evidence like this, that God is in control like this. I think of Genesis thirty-seven twenty-eight. You remember when the Brothers of Joseph were mistreating him, wanted to get rid of him, wanted to kill him, and then decided, hey, we better not kill him. Let's just get rid of him. We'll send him down to Egypt. And just as they're formulating that plan, do you think it was any coincidence that as they looked off in the distance, here comes a bunch of Midianite traders? And they're going by in a caravan, and they just happen to be going down to Egypt, which is exactly where they wanted to ship Joseph off to, hoping they would never see him again because they were selling him into slavery. You think that was a coincidence? Absolutely no way. You see, God is able have the right person, the right place, at the right time. And why was that caravan coming by? Because God wanted Joseph in Egypt, because God wanted Joseph to someday run Egypt, because it was all part of the massive plan of redemption for the human race. And here is Joseph at the hands of his wicked brothers, sent on a train that coincidentally it seems comes by, but really it's just the hand of God all the while. You look at Exodus 2.5, the other night I watched the movie, uh, Ten Commandments, and uh, this little girl gets into the, to the river with her mother and they put the little baby in the basket. But you realize that as that mother puts that baby into the river and that little tiny ark that she made, that when we read in Exodus 2.5, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark... Among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it. That is no accident. That is no coincidence. God had her take that walk that morning. God was wanting to save the life of baby Moses for obvious reasons. So she just happens to look in the right direction among the reeds. God is guiding her eyes, God is guiding her movements. It is all guided by the providence of God. It is no accident. We come to John 4, 7. We read these simple words, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. You know, the whole thing had a uniqueness about it. I think from the very first moment as she's seeing this man in the distance sitting at the well, 12 noon, something unique about this day. It was, in fact, the most unique day of her life. It was a divine appointment. God has a divine appointment for every person here. Some of you have already had that divine appointment. You've heard the words of Jesus Christ. You've responded and you are born again Christians today on your way to heaven. Some of you have not responded properly. You're not on your way to heaven. You may have even had several divine appointments, but you're not handling them right. And you've gone away. Oh, I don't know. You do almost persuade me to become a Christian. And yet you're just moving now today into one more divine appointment listening one more time to the preaching of the gospel, one more time sifting through your mind saying, I wonder what I'll do with it this time. I wonder if God really, this funny feeling I feel in my heart, I wonder if it really is God, should I respond? Ah, I don't know. Listen, don't blow another divine appointment and send yourself on into more emptiness. This woman came to the divine appointment and the great thing about her is that she responded properly Make it the greatest rule of your life. If you're going to have divine appointments arranged by the living God, that you will respond to whatever it is he's trying to do for you. So the divine appointment leads to a tactful approach. And I just love this. What we're going to see here is some very key things that Jesus does in leading this woman to Christ, to salvation. And these key things that he does are transferable to us. What you have here is classic one-on-one evangelism. And what Jesus does here is so simple, so wonderful, and any one of us can do it. And I want to just go through here and identify them and talk about each one a little bit, so that when we leave here, each one of us can go out and use the same approach that our Savior used. The first thing I want you to see here in His tactful approach, and may I say as we get into this, sometimes we are so untactful when we talk to people that do not know the Lord. We need guidance here. We need instruction here. We need to become more skillful. And that's why it's such a thrill to watch Jesus. They don't get any better than this. Notice the first thing. You read in John 4, 7. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew... Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The very first thing I want you to see in his approach is that Jesus, in his witness, was kind and completely unprejudiced. Kind and completely unprejudiced. No prejudice surfacing of any kind. Neither toward her race, neither toward her form of religion, nor toward her immorality. Totally kind and unprejudiced. Now, she comes to the well to draw water. This is one of the few wells, this well of Jacob's. It's one of the few wells where you can go to it, sit down and say, this is just what the Bible talked about. You can go to a lot of places in Israel and they say, this is the place. Then you walk out the door and go down the street. There's some other building, some cathedral. And they say, no, that wasn't the place. This is the place. You walk down the street a little farther and they say, neither one of those is the real place. This is the place. And they go, well, wait a minute. All these places, all these shrines, cathedrals, and then someone, some Jew says, none of them are the place. Nobody knows. Don't worry about that. But you want to find a real place? Go to Jacob's well. You want to find a real place? Go to Shiloh. You know, and there's, there are those places where you know Jacob's well is there. You can go to it today. You can sit where Jesus sat. What kind of a well was it? Well, they dug these wells from solid limestone rock. They'd go way down. Sometimes they'd have steps that would go down, down, down to the water and you could draw it. Other times they would build a little wall around it, a couple of feet high, both to protect the well and to protect little kids from running and falling in. This particular well, from what they have been able to assess, was about a hundred feet deep. At the time of Jesus, dug straight down through limestone rock, about a hundred feet deep, so that here is Jesus sitting on the edge of this well, it's, it's like a concrete tire, where it's a circular thing with a hole in the middle, the well goes down, and you can actually sit there, and people would gather and sit and socialize. So here is Jesus sitting on the edge of that particular well. The wells were often outside of town, local landmarks, meeting places, and he's just sitting there at 12 noon, it is the hottest time of the day. Now, she comes to draw water at that time. The question is, why? Why does she come then? Well, she came to draw water then because it was the hottest part of the day. Drawing water at that time was a job given to the most common of women. So it wasn't a high and lofty position in life. Perhaps she had had servants at one time in her life, maybe four or five marriages ago, she was better off in life. We know from the passage she's married five times. But now she has come to the point, at least in life, where she is a common woman who has the lowest job, go out and draw the water. Now the women usually would come out and draw the water about six o'clock in the evening because it was the coolest time of the day. And then they would hang around, and you know, women, when they get together, they like to enjoy some verbiage and fellowship one with another and pass a few stories back and forth and... You know how they, they love to talk and visit with each other the usual time they did that was at 6 o'clock in the evening and now here's a woman in a very very small village she's been married five times she now lives with a man who is not her husband you know what her reputation was in that little tiny village so it is no wonder to us then when we come to discover that she goes out to the well in the middle of the day when the women never went there she's trying to avoid meeting anyone at the well she does not want to come to the well and have people make fun of her, talk about her, speak of her reputation, bring up her five husbands. fact that she's now living with another guy, oh, here she comes again. I wonder what her name is this week. You know, this kind of a thing. And they're all talking as she comes up, and suddenly they're quiet. You know how that action happens. Oh, hi, how you doing? Beautiful day, isn't it? So here she comes, she's moving toward the well. Now there are probably no women there. But instead there is a Jewish man. Now bear in mind how she'd feel about men at this time in her life. Five husbands, one she's with now she doesn't live with, probably has an attitude about men by now, right? Probably somewhat cynical, huh? Didn't work out five times. Careful now, cynical now. I'm not going to marry you, I'll live with you. So a little Leary, I'm certain, of men. Here comes the woman to the well. There's a man sitting on the well. Closer she gets, she begins to discover, you know, in those days the Jews wore this blue fringe around their robe. That identified them immediately as being Jewish. She's a Samaritan woman. He is sitting there, easily, immediately identified as a Jew. Here is a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan. She doesn't like Jewish men. She is even probably having a conflict whether she likes men at all by this time. And now she comes to the well and she comes up and he begins to talk to her. She's no doubt bracing herself for some very harsh words because Jewish men were not very friendly with Samaritan men and probably less friendly with Samaritan women. The rabbis held a very low view of teaching the Wada women, and uh, had some very terrible sayings about it. So she's probably bracing herself for some pretty harsh words. And the wonderful thing is this. She is very pleasantly surprised as she nears the well, and this kind, different Jewish man begins to talk to her. And we read in verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? You see all the key phrases, key words? How is it that you, being a Jew, She's not rhyming, I think it just came out that way. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, and of all things a woman. Why? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now literally, if they had to, they'd have some dealings, right? The guys have gone into town to get some food from Samaritans. Literally, I think the issue here, if you get into the context and the history of it, is the fact that, you know, the Jews were really into the ceremonial washings and um, defilement and this and that. Well, they had this law that if you drank or ate from a Samaritan cup or plate or fork or whatever, you'd be defiled. So she says, how is it that you are asking a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And, you know, the disciples come up later and they say, what are you doing talking to this woman? A woman? You're talking to a woman? You know, that means nothing to us now in our society. But then it was a big deal. And a Samaritan woman on top of that. And the idea is this. You have nothing to draw with. You want to drink from my cup? Are you kidding? You see, the average Orthodox Jew would have taken a cup if it was offered to him from a Samaritan woman with a drink and thrown it on the ground in disgust and trying to avoid being ceremonially unclean. So here she comes, all these things going on, and Jesus, in a very kind, unprejudiced way, begins to speak to her, Brethren, may God help us that when we talk to people that are deep in sin, social outcasts, are already full of fears in life, that their very first impression of us as God's people and His ambassadors would be, this is a kind person. This is a person without prejudice. I feel like I can talk to a person like this. One of the greatest comments that will ever be paid to you is when a non-believing person says, you know what? I've talked to a lot of religious people in my life. You are the first one I've ever been able to just sit and talk to at length about Jesus Christ. That compliment will come when we are kind and without prejudice. Jesus sets the example. Totally kind and totally unprejudiced. Let's go to the second thing that happens here. He speaks to her, and here is his tactful approach being unfolded further. He speaks to her on common ground. You know, the first thing I had in my notes was he spoke to her like she was a human being. Then I erased it and put common ground. Sounded better for my notes. But I'm defaulting back to what is in my heart. He talks to her like a human being. You know, something seems to happen to us occasionally as Christians. God sets the divine appointment. He pushes us into it. We find ourselves there and we go into this thing. We become something else. And we can't even talk like a human being. All of a sudden we just become this thing and we're just gonna lead them to Christ you know and we commit some of the classic blunders what I want you to see here is Jesus speaks to her on common ground like a human being he just talks to her and he listens and he avoids some of these religious classic blunders like charging in with a tactless zeal and scaring her off he doesn't do that that's very important we get like that you know that I read about a barber who was a young Christian, and he attended a meeting one night where the speaker stressed the need to share the gospel with others. He knew he was lacking in this area, so he determined that he would speak to the very first person who came into his barber shop about his soul. Well, the next morning, after the customer had been seated and the apron was tucked around his neck, the barber began to strap his razor back and forth very vigorously. You know the straight edge razor? Then testing the edge, he's got up there real sharp, right by the man's face. He turned to the man in the chair and he said, Hey, friend, are you ready to die and meet God? The man looked at the razor and fled out the door, apron and all. Obviously that barber lacked tact. (laughs) Jesus did not. He talked to her like a normal human being. He listened to her. He talked to her on common ground. He sought to build a bridge on common understanding. God help us to be that way. In sharing our faith, we need to talk to people. Don't just jump in. Do you know Christ? You know, you're in their face. They've never even seen you before. And you frighten them away. Talk to them. Ask them their opinions about things. And build from there, he says simply to the woman. You know, he could have said many, many things given the fact that he was God. Think of it. He says so simply, give me a drink. So simply. Didn't charge in with tactless zeal and scare her off. Another thought just moving along from that is he spoke to her with words she could relate to on common ground like being thirsty and getting water. So simple. Simple. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Now don't forget how He looks. He is so exhausted, He can't even move anymore. The disciples are gone to get the food. He's too exhausted. Kind of a wreck looking, you know. He's so tired. So there He is, sweaty, hot. He's a peasant rabbi so he has a poor outfit to begin with so here he is give me a drink of water then he hauls off and he says by the way if you knew who it was 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 talking to you you would have known the gift of god if you knew the gift of god who it is who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water and the woman says sir wait a minute you don't have anything to draw from this well the well is very deep, probably a hundred feet deep. You've asked me for a drink of water. Where are you going to get that water? I don't understand. But here's the beautiful thing. It's just a simple discussion about water. And he's perking her interest, you see. Paul used the same kind of an approach. He just talked to people like they were human beings. And he found what they were into. He found what the common bridge, the common ground. Turn in the book of Acts, I want to show you this, in Acts 17, in verse 16. It is so important when we are speaking to people one-on-one that we're sensitive, that we just take our time and talk to them. Acts 17, 16, it says, Now when Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city given over to idols. He had this great passion for these lost people. Therefore, because of that, he reasoned in the synagogues, the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. And he had so much in common with them, their heritage, he could easily talk to them. Then you find him out in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. He gets so stirred that he wants to talk to anybody he can. But now drop down to verse 22. They take Paul out to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And he is out there and he begins to look around. Now he wants to reach these men. And it was the pastime of these men. They loved nothing better than to stand around in this place, talk about any new kind of religion or philosophy. He wants to reach them. So rather than jumping in the middle... And saying, look you sinners, anybody here know Christ? He comes up and he surveys this situation. Why? Because he wants to be effective. He wants to reach these people. It says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive. That is a word of sensitivity. He's been looking around, he's been watching. I perceive. He's been listening to them. I perceive that you are very in all things, you are very religious. Oh, that's perfect. They love it. They want to talk to this guy already, but he's just their kind of a guy. Hey, come on up the hill. You're one of us. And then he goes on. Here's why I know, because as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, you know, I've been thinking about what you guys worship. Oh, really? wonder what he has to say. I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Oh, now they're completely intrigued. But you see, I perceive, I've been watching, I've been studying, I'm sensitive. I'm talking to you like you're normal human beings, like we're able to discuss matters together. It's so important we relate like that. You look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Just turn back in the book of Acts of chapter 8 to verse 29. Philip, you know, was just in the midst of a full-blown revival in Samaria, of all places. And the Spirit said to him to go down to Gaza. So he had to leave. It was quite a way to go down there. He gets down there, he's wondering what in the world he... What am I doing here? Now, I think I heard God. Now, what am I doing here? There's nobody out here. There's nothing going on. I just left the greatest time of my life as a Christian to stand on this dirt road. All of a sudden, here's a rumbling, and here comes a chariot. And as he moves toward the chariot, there's a guy standing in the chariot from Ethiopia, and he's reading. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And he just very normally sensitive now to the Spirit. And the Spirit said to Philip, Acts 8, 29, Go near and overtake the chariot. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? Just a simple approach. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And they began to talk. And soon he's... Just talking to him, asking questions, listening, answering the questions. Next thing you know, he's baptizing the guy. He's come to Christ. You see, as we study the tactful approach of Jesus Christ, what we see is that he is very kind and he is very unprejudiced and he is also one who just talks and listens. He seeks to speak to people on common ground and that is what he does with the woman at the well. Now go back to John 4. The third thing that we see here is that he addresses then her emptiness. He's progressing. He addresses her emptiness. And here what he does is he takes time to discover her interest. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice he doesn't give away too much up front. Again, we need to be sensitive here. As you're talking to a person, don't just dump everything out on them all at once. You know, you've come out of been studying for a few weeks. You've got some new books. You're all loaded up. You're just waiting. Oh God, just send someone one of those divine appointments. I can't wait, Lord. You've even got little notes. You're ready to roll. It's kind of a mini-sermon thing. But Jesus, just very gently, is taking time to discover her interest and He doesn't give away too much at once. He draws her out slowly. As she displays her interest, he gives out a little more and a little more. And I want you to notice in the whole thing here, he's not using a lot of Christianese. Be careful about that one too. You know what that one is? Well, what are you telling me about? Well, I'm telling you I'm not in the world anymore. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Anything else I need to know about you? Yes, I'm in the body, but I've got to stay out of the flesh. Oh, and how do you stay clean? I wash every day in the blood. Oh, hey. Oh, right. <laughs> we need to talk to people. We don't want to give away too much. We want to address their emptiness, but we need to take time to discover their interests and lay aside the Christianese stuff. You know, our lingo that we have with each other that means something to us and means nothing to people out there. He's talking to her in words she can understand. And so he's drawing her out. She displays a little interest. He unfolds a little more. And he talks to her about this living water. Now, that may seem immediately spiritual and mystical to you. But to her, as she is sitting on the edge of a very deep well, where the water, 100 feet down, is slowly seeping from the ground into the well, that water is a certain type of water. It's well water. When he says living water to her, what she immediately thinks of is spring water. The kind of water that you would have, say, coming out the bottom of the hill at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said, I know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That revelation was given to Peter right at the base of Mount Hermon, where the Jordan River begins, and it comes literally out of the bottom of the mountain. It's a spring that gushes forth out of the mountain. It's fresh, moving, clear water that to them was what they called living water, moving water. So he says to her, he would have given you living water. He's really speaking in very familiar terms, but telling her something very new. So you must understand that that is why she answers the way she does. She's thinking, huh, there's this deep well. He's talking about giving me some living water and he has no cup. And he's so tired, he probably couldn't get it anyway. And he's, he wants to give me living water, and there's no living water around here. Uh, I just don't understand. So, you understand why she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Is there some spring around here I don't know about? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? And drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. Is something new going to be going on around here? I don't know about. Are you greater than Jacob? Almost a little sarcastic now. Just another man playing mind games with me as a woman. Jew, Samaritan, man, woman thing. What is going on here? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Could he have told her stories? You want to know how great I am concerning Jacob? Remember that night he wrestled all night long? You remember how he hobbled the rest of his life with that hip that was crushed in the fight? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm greater than Jacob. Want to hear any other stories? (laughs) But instead, he just stays low-key, and he ministers to her. Of course, he's beginning to talk to her about the realm of the Spirit, but she doesn't understand that yet. And he's discovering her interest. You see, what happens is that Sometimes we're just blundering along in our witness and we're, we're trying to remember everything we learned at the latest seminar. We're just waiting for them to be quiet so we can go to the next step, you know. Proceed quickly to step two. We're not being sensitive. Sometimes people, you know what, they're just not interested. One of the best things you can do at that point is realize, hey, you know what, this is probably not a divine appointment. They're not even interested. They're not even listening. God, lead me to an open one. But when you have one who's displaying interest, you can proceed, you can proceed, you can proceed. Oh, really? Now tell me more about this. This is what he's doing. And now he begins to touch on her inward thirst or emptiness. If you look at verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I shall give Him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I might thirst not nor come here to draw. What do you think she's thinking? I hate these hot days coming to the well, carrying this bucket on my head. You know, she probably walked with a water jug on her head. My neck aches when I get home. I hate avoiding these gals. You know, I've to come here in the middle of the day. Sometimes I meet men like this. You know, maybe, just maybe... He's saying, there's some way I don't have to come to the well anymore. Now I'm really interested. How could I live my life and not come to the well again and again? But you see, what he wants to say is, I want to tell you how to live your life spiritually so you don't come again and again to the spiritual well to satisfy your spiritual thirst, which has left you so empty. And this is where he is going. She just thinks he's talking about making her life easier. You see, Jesus, as you know, is referring to trying to find satisfaction in the world. And you cannot find it there. You will thirst again. And I want to say afresh and anew to even you Christian people tonight. If you've been drinking again at the well of the world, your mouth is parched and dry already. It's so unsatisfying. Every man, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful, is empty inside without Jesus Christ, without God. We can assume, in addition, there's a loneliness in every person's life, even if you're happily married and you're not a Christian, you have a big empty void inside that can only be filled by God. Now, if you're one of the very few and rare people in this world today that's happily married and you're not a Christian, you still know a loneliness. And there is a sense in which even with your family around you, you're still lonely because only God can fill that void inside. You can have all the world could offer and you still will thirst again. To loneliness, marriage, parents, children, friends cannot fill. It's a loneliness for God. There's a sense of guilt in every person, which leaves you empty. You drink of the water of the world, you're guilty from it, and now you're empty all over again. And there's a fear of death. There's all these things involved in that thirsting again. We could spend so much time on it, but I want to move on with the flow of what Jesus is doing with this woman. I do want to say to you, if you don't know Christ today, you're filling your cup in the wrong place. I want to ask you, how long is it going to take you? How long is it going to take you in life to admit how empty you really are? To admit how frustrated you really are with trying this and trying that and trying the other and still coming up empty. You can come to Jesus Christ now, right this moment where you sit. If you will admit to the Lord, I'm empty, I hate it, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of the bondage, break it! And I will follow you. Just admit your sin, admit your guilt, admit your emptiness and loneliness and ask Him to come and fill it. And He will. He will. I was talking to Greg Laurie today and I reminded him of the fact that I had come to the Lord. He said, Now, did you come to the Lord reading my Living Waters track? Was it kind of at the beginning of your search? You know, cartoon thing, half-baked effort. He said, I can't believe anybody even got ministered to by that thing. I said, no, I came at the very end of my search. He said, oh really, what was it that got you in that little thing? I said, it was that empty thing inside that little man with the drops going off his head. You know, they do little cheap cartoons, the kind Greg draws on napkins in restaurants to this day. And I said, it was the empty thing, you know, the empty thing. That's what got me. And I took that piece of paper, that booklet to my room with me and got on my knees with it. He said, wow. Man, I'd do another one of those things. You know? No, why don't you do a crusade instead? It might be better, you know? (laughs) And I said, would you have ever thought when you were drawing those little cartoons that we would be talking, and tonight I'd be going to minister about the woman at the well, and I'd be saying to you, I read your booklet, and God has done all this. He said, never in a million years. Isn't God amazing? God is amazing. If you don't know Him tonight, you're missing out on the greatest thing in life, which is your own salvation. Give your life to Christ. Begin today to enjoy your life and enjoy forgiveness of sin. So here is Jesus ministering to the woman, talking about her emptiness. She's still not getting the point. He he then moves a little farther to make her get the point. And what he does is he puts the finger on the black spot in her heart. And that becomes the evidence to her of her inward thirst that's leaving her so empty. He causes her to face her sin, in other words. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Billy Graham has so well said. At that moment, it was like a thousand searchlights were suddenly turned on in her soul. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, "Uh, I have no husband. And Jesus, I just love this. Doesn't change his tone. Doesn't say that's right, you crumb. Doesn't move halfway around the well. Go, don't get your cooties on me, man. <laughs> he just goes on. Yeah, you've well said, I have no husband. I know all about you. For you've had five husbands. Can you see the love in his eyes? You've had five husbands. And the one whom you are now with is not your husband. And in that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, if I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> Big time, lady. Big time. God's saving love knows no boundaries. Jesus looks at you tonight. He sees your sin. He knows about all your husbands. He knows your immoralities. He knows your cheating. He knows your drugs. He knows your vomiting all over yourself and your drunken stupor. He knows it all. And He loves you. And all He wants is for you to come and take that filthy baggage and lay it at His feet and say, I don't want it anymore. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. And He will. He will. He was so kind to this woman. He spoke to her on common ground. He addressed her emptiness and showed her her sin in the process, caused her to face it. And then he wisely handled her diversion. You know what happens, don't you, in the middle of a witness? (laughs) Conviction's getting hot and heavy. God is speaking to the individual's heart. And all of a sudden, the searchlights are going off and they're seeing their sin and they're seeing their need and they're uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. And they're seeing the light in your eyes. I remember looking at that light in the eyes of Christians witnessing to me. I remember the night the first Black Sabbath album came out. One of my friends brought it to the apartment. And I was sailing on LSD. And he turned that thing on. And that bell ringing in the rain. And that horrible, dark, satanic sound. <speaking in Spanish> oh! It just seemed so horrifying to me. But it kind of neat you know and then in the middle i'm just getting into this whole vibe it was just so bizarre and then in walked the two twins the lint sisters i remember them like it was five minutes ago both had blonde hair both knew jesus both looked identical both smiling like this <laughs> hey oh no the lint sisters Ah! I just remember that light in their eyes was so bright. And I remember I would sit and talk to them. They got me in that room and Black Sabbath going in the other room. And we just sat down there smiling. How are you, Danny? (laughs) You're such a nice person. You know, talking to me in common human talk. Are you having a nice time at the (laughs) party? Wow, you're four different colors, you know. How are you guys doing? Oh, just praising God. We're so happy, you know. We didn't have to do any of this. We're still happy. And, oh man, wow, now that's heavy. You know? I just remember all that, and then I remember I hit points where i get so convicted, diversion time. Getting a little too close here. Searchlights are beaming. Say, uh, you guys playing volleyball, you know? Or what's the difference between you and the Mormons? Oh, you know, I grew up Mormon. We had a lot of spaghetti, the potlucks, you know. And <laughs> you see, here's Jesus, man. They're rolling; they're really moving now. And all of a sudden, verse 20, our fathers uh, worshipped on this mountain. You know, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place one ought to worship. Now, is that really true? Diversion. You get it? Let's just talk about religion. Let's talk about where to worship instead of how I should worship. And I love the fact that Jesus just smoothly handles her diversion. Brethren, get used to that. You see, you want to handle it like Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses are masters at this. They'll come to your doorstep. You're moving along, talking about Christ. He's not Michael the Archangel. He's the Son of God. You can know Him personally. You don't get blipped out when you die. And you're really moving. And do you know Him personally? Their face goes white. What does that mean? They don't know what that means. And then all of a sudden it's sword fight time with the scriptures and the diversion comes. You ever been caught in that? You can spend the next hour just diverting. Jesus didn't want to divert. So he quickly ministers to her, her diversion and her question. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Hey, the issue of where is coming to an end. Let's get off it. Okay. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Now he's back to her soul. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming as now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He's seeking you right now. And then the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, that much I know, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. She's beginning to get, I think you may be Him and he said to her, Can you imagine this moment? This is the greatest revelation that he gave to an individual up until this point. He says, I who speak to you am he. Full disclosure of who he was as the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Given to who? An immoral, outcast woman. And at this point, she is convinced and she is converted. Now I told you we'd make it to verse 30. We're going to make it to verse 41. Watch this. Go to verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? They're just marveling. And the woman then left her water pot and she went her way into the city and said to the men, interesting, said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things ever I did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. You know what I love about that? She gets converted. She knows so little She has a thimble full of knowledge, a heart full of passion. She has just come to Christ, and she goes out and does so much with the little that she has. And that just speaks to me so much. Why is it that so often it's the new Christians who know so little and have this fresh zeal for God that often go out and do the most... And the older Christians who now know so much and have seen God work so mightily, repeatedly, do so little for the kingdom of God. Why is it? That's a challenge I leave you with tonight. And I challenge you to not be outdone by some new Christian who doesn't know near as much as you do about our great God. Be challenged by them. But don't let them outdo you. Let's go down to verse 39. Verse 39. I told you we get to verse 41. We're going to skip. It doesn't matter how, as long as you get there. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. Isn't that wonderful? Stay with us. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. All these people got converted because of the encounter of this one immoral woman with our great and loving and gracious Savior Jesus Christ and because she immediately went and did something with what she had been given and they came out and responded and came to know him as well. God help us. This is the way to witness to a person one-on-one, the way our master did it. It's effective. May God help us to do it May it not be said of us that those who know the least and have known Christ the least amount of time do the most for Him. But may we realize that to whom much is given, much is required, and go out and give back and give out the goodness that has been given to us. And watch God make those divine appointments and guide us by His Spirit tactfully through them to lead those seeking souls to Jesus Christ. Now, it isn't right to skip verses. So we'll have to go back. But that's another story. And the thing about the worship, that's an entire message all by itself. So we have to go back for that too. We pass through it to keep the flow of thought. The next time we'll go back to the worship section and use it as a launching point, go sweep through the Bible a little bit and land back again, again in the passage. It's just so rich we can't let it go by. What a wonderful time we have together studying the Word of God, don't we? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, we freely confess to our sin. It is so good to look here in the pages of Scripture and see our loving Savior. Lord Jesus, you don't change your tone or your approach with us upon the admission of our sin, but you welcome those confessions as an opportunity to cleanse us. We confess our sin to you tonight. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for our sin. Fill us deep in our hearts with your love and your life. Lead us, Lord, and guide us away from the things of this world that do not satisfy. Grant us, Lord, that life, that rich life and fellowship with you that only you can give. And may, Lord, we be so grateful and so thankful. that We can't wait to go out and find someone else like this woman to tell the good things that have been done for us by Jesus Christ. And grant us, Lord, the joy of seeing many others come to know you through our testimony. We will be careful to give you all the glory, Lord Jesus. For we ask these things in your name. Amen.